0: We've got Passover coming up at the end of the week, depending on whether you're a Karaite or a Rabbinic Jew. And I was thinking about the crucifixion. We've been having discussions in Midrash, good ones quite frankly, and one of them is the last thing that Yeshua says on the cross is that it's finished. And I've been thinking about that and what's it mean and so forth, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. But as I was thinking about this all week, I ran into Doug Wilson, who's the Calvinist up in Idaho that I enjoy, and then Ron Dart, who's radio preacher that I enjoy, and they're all of them talking about the same thing that I'm thinking about from different perspectives. Funny how God does that sometimes. So let's start with Doug Wilson. As you know, or maybe you don't know, he's a Presbyterian, Calvinist, good guy, very conservative, and he's talking about the evangelical church in the context of telling the truth one of the things that he says is sort of the defining characteristic of the evangelical church in the united states is they are nice and he's not impressed with that because in being nice they've quit standing for the truth so they've sort of lost the plot if you will and he's talking about it in the context, among other things, about this Supreme Court confirmation, where you have an affirmative action pick with a mediocre career who will not tell the truth. When she was asked, what's a woman, her answer was, I'm not a biologist. Now any six-year-old can tell the difference between a man and a woman and quite frankly she can too because she was nominated because she was a woman you know, come on but the fact that she won't say that indicates that she will not tell the truth and what we've done is we have put a judge on the highest court in the land who doesn't tell the truth that's not good so Wilson was talking about it in that context and he was talking about the fact that evangelicals don't oppose anything anymore. They don't stand for anything because they're nice. Ron Dart was talking about the same thing in a slightly different context. And Ron Dart, of course, has been dead for a number of years. So he's talking back in the context of the 80s and 90s because that's when he was preaching. And his comment was, the church lately, and lately being the last 50 or 60 years has gone off and pursued relevance. What they've tried to do is become relevant to the culture. I'm watching a British television program, an old one, set in countryside England, the police drama, and one of the characters in there is a Church of England priest who's a woman. And... When she's introduced, she comes running up in her track suit and she says, hi, I'm the Rev Suze. Her name is Susan, but she calls herself the Rev Suze so she'll be relevant to all the kids. And you can imagine what her preaching was like. What Dart was talking about is the church is chasing the culture instead of driving the culture. That's what the pursuit of relevance is. That's what this niceness of the evangelical church is that Wilson was talking about. In both cases, what they're trying to do is be conformed to the world instead of having the world be conformed to the will of God. As I say, I've been thinking about the same thing in an entirely different context, in the context of Passover. And I was thinking about it from the perspective of Yeshua's final word on the cross, which is, it is finished. Questions come up, what is finished? A lot of our Sunday brethren indicate that, well, now our sins are forgiven and so forth, and we go off and do whatever we want. I will suggest to you that that's not what it means at all. First thing I want to do is whip a little Greek on you. I know nothing about Greek. I don't speak a word of Greek except I do speak lexicon. So the Greek lexicon for the word at the end of John when he's on the cross is teleo. It can mean a couple of things. One, it can mean a terminus. In other words, your bus trip is finished when you get where you're going. Perfectly acceptable meaning to it. So in that sense, finished is a legitimate translation. And most of your Bibles have that. More interesting is the second meaning, to perform, execute, complete, fulfill, so that the last thing done corresponds to what was said, the order, the command, etc., in that meaning what it says is mission accomplished or to give you another analogy which is even better I think a sports analogy when you've been struggling all the way down the field and you cross the finish line what do you say touchdown that's what he's saying and I'll explain it to you and I'll back it up with scripture a lot of you've heard variations on this before some of it will be Familiar to it, some of it will be new. And I'll continue with the sports analogy. A military analogy works just fine, too, by the way. You told me to go take that hill. I took it. Mission accomplished. That doesn't mean that the war is over. What it means is I took that hill. In the sporting context, what it means is I got a touchdown. The game is not over i got to go back and try and do it again, at least as long as the clock is running. So the fact that I've scored here is wonderful, big deal, but that doesn't mean that the game is over. That doesn't mean that the war has necessarily been won. It is an intermediate objective in a longer plan. Now, I'll give you some scripture for that. Ephesians start with Ephesians 1 verse 7. In him, Yeshua, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. We're going to be talking about the hidden things. The mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth so the ultimate objective of this war that we are in is the uniting of all things under God and under his Messiah that's the goal that's when we know that the war is won just sort of a rhetorical question do we see that right now Remember, I was talking in the context of the evangelical church that is no longer driving the culture. Talking about it in the context of the church that's trying to be relevant, trying to be friends with the world instead of bringing the world into the kingdom of God. So what I will suggest to you is that the idea, plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, That is not yet accomplished, which is one of the reasons that I say that the crucifixion was a touchdown, but it's a touchdown in a part of a longer game. It is part of a long campaign, not the end in itself. Let's stay in Ephesians. Now I'm down in Ephesians 3, and Paul is talking about revealing a mystery. So three six. this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers in the promise of Christ, Yeshua, through the gospel. So Paul is talking about a mystery that he is revealing to the church in Ephesus. And going down a little farther in the same chapter in verse 9, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Two things then. Both of which are mysteries. Mystery number one is the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Mystery number two is I'm going to grab the principalities in power and I'm going to explain to them what's going on. Because remember what God is dealing with universally if you will is a rebellion in heaven. And the rebellion in heaven is being reflected with what is being played out here on earth. And we are part of that situation that is being played out. But it's not just down here, it's also up there. And so what Paul is saying is, I'm going to reveal to you two mysteries. Mystery number one is, because of the crucifixion, the Gentiles are now fellow heirs. That's a big deal. And then the second thing is, I am going to explain to the principalities and powers just exactly what's going on. And I'm going to bring them back into subjection. Now, cross-referencing that, I'll go to 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So the wisdom that he is imparting is not worldly wisdom. Furthermore, it is not the wisdom of the principalities and powers, if you will. Remember, we're talking about mysteries here. Verse 7. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So the deal here is there is a mystery that has been in play basically since the creation. Christ's crucifixion is one. Step in the working out of God's plan. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not being flip about this. Yeshua was suffering terribly on the cross, but the last thing he says is, Score. Didn't say it enthusiastically, I'm sure. Please, I'm not being flip. But that's what he's saying. You gave me a mission, I have now accomplished that mission goal now there are other goals that we are going to have to accomplish the war is not over but this is a major goal in the process of working out God's plan for the world so when he dies on the cross and he says it is finished which most of your translations say nothing is finished the plan is still unfolding The battle is still raging. All we have done, all again, I don't mean to say that in a way that minimizes anything. It is a big deal. But what has happened is we've taken one hill on the way to Moscow. Or on the way to Berlin or on the way to wherever you want to be. Baghdad. Pick your objective. We took one hill on that campaign. There are more things to do and the ultimate goal is the defeat of the enemy so that's what's going on here and what I'm suggesting in the context of Ron Dart and Doug Wilson is both of them are saying the army is sitting back on its blessed assurance thinking that things have won and they have not and because much of the church is sitting back on its blessed assurance thinking that the battle has been won they are not engaged as part of God's army that's what Wilson is saying and that's what Ron Dart is saying and as I say, I was thinking the same thing in a completely different context the battle still goes on and the idea that we're going to be able to just sit back with our hands over our tummies and everything is going to be fine is nonsense he's got us here for a reason He's got us here to prevail. One of the things I like about Ron Dart and his program, is his program is entitled Born to Win. That's what we're here to do. And if we make friends with the world, we are not engaging with the world in his name. Now, one of the things that the church has become, and it's because of the culture. I'm not suggesting the church did that by themselves. It's the culture is we have become therapeutic. Everything is about therapy. I have listened to a number of Sunday preachers, and they all, oh, I know you're wounded, and I know you're hurt, and I know, and on and on and on. Well, those of you who don't know, I used to be in the Army. The Army has really very good medical service. And during peacetime, they do things like deliver babies and all that kind of stuff. You know, perfectly good, full-scale medical services. But that's not their job. That's just something they're doing while they're not fighting a war. In other words, you've got to have them around, so you might just as well deliver babies and do pediatrics and all that kind of stuff because you've got them on the payroll, you don't want them sitting around. Their job is to conserve the fighting force. So in a war, if you get banged up, you go into a medical tent and the idea is they patch you back up, patch you on the butt and send you back out into the battle. They don't say, oh dear, you poor wounded thing. Come over here and lie down. It's going to be okay. The goal of the church, the goal of a hospital is, of course, to heal the damaged. That's part of the mission. But we heal the damaged so that they can get back out there and continue to fight. Not so they can sit back here on their blessed assurance and emote all over us for the rest of their lives. Which is what's happened with our church in the pursuit of relevance. So what I'm suggesting to you is our society's model of the church has lost the plot. They're supposed to be God's army in the world. And you guys are a platoon, okay? That's about how big we are is we're a platoon. We're not a division. We're not a corps. We're not an army. We're a platoon. Okay, that's fine. God needs platoons, and that's what we are. But understand that a lot of large formations in the church, thousands and thousands of people, have ceased to be effective in God's war. They are basically sitting in port, healing each other, being emotional, all that kind of stuff, and all oh, that's our, fine. But you gotta send the battleship out into the ocean in order for it to be effective. It doesn't do any good sitting around in port taking care of everybody. You don't have a war, yeah, by all means, have it sit in port, have it take care of everybody. One of the examples I used a number of years ago is the United States has something on the order. I don't uh, Biden has been cutting things, so I'm not sure how many we got anymore. but we used to have over a dozen aircraft carriers. I don't know whether you know what an aircraft carrier can do, but they carry helicopter wings. They carry a battalion of marines. They've got five hospitals. They've got a nuclear reactor that can purify fresh water at an amazing rate. And so what happens whenever there's a disaster is we run an aircraft carrier over there, park it as close to the shore as we can, run a cable into the city to restore power because the aircraft carrier can power a city. We get our helicopters off of the aircraft carrier and we go start finding people who have been damaged. We bring them onto the aircraft carrier where we've got five hospitals. We purify water so they've got stuff to eat. That's wonderful. But that's not why we built an aircraft carrier. We didn't build an aircraft carrier to do that. Now, when we're not fighting anybody, by all means, use them for that. That's a good use of them, as as I was saying about military medicine. When you're not fighting a war, deliver babies, vaccinate children, cure chickenpox, whatever you need to do. You've got to keep busy. But understand, that's not why you exist. That's not why an aircraft carrier exists. And the problem with our church today is our aircraft carriers are all parked in harbor, being all touchy-feely and relevant with each other, instead of being out there where they're supposed to be. I got to tell you, I got captured last night by the Russians. I was working on this, trying to figure out what I was going to say. I still haven't figured out what I'm going to say. We'll find out in a minute. And I got to listening to Tchaikovsky, his second piano concerto, and that just sort of led me to Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto, and that sort of led me to Rimsky-Korsakov. So I used an hour or more, sitting there, captured by the Russians. I literally was captured. You know, you normally have music in the background. No. I was watching this video. I was watching the conductor. I was captured. And one of the things about God, which is opposed to the enemy, is God thinks beauty is important. The enemy makes things ugly you look at the concrete boxes that pass for houses nowadays and all of that kind of stuff, ugliness abounds. God gives us beauty. And by the way, the beauty that God gives us is God's equivalent of a hospital. It's some place that you can retreat to to be healed. It doesn't have to be music. I mean, it can be going out and looking at a field full of wildflowers, sitting by a stream, any of those kinds of things. That's refreshment for your soul. That's what God gives you. Because God understands that you're supposed to be in a battle and there are going to be casualties. You're going to get banged up. And so what He does is He provides all of this beauty that you can back off and say... I need some R&R here. I need some Russians or whatever you need. I got captured by the Russians. You may get captured by something else. I was walking on the bike path and some guy comes up behind me on a bicycle and he's got a backpack and the backpack has got speakers and it's going thumpa, 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 thumpa and talking about uh, anyway, talking about the mistreatment of women talking about shooting things up and it was just ugly it was loud it was ugly it was intrusive and that's what our culture is doing and the fact that our culture is doing that tells us what the problem is and the fact that our churches are pursuing that stuff because well that will get the kids in here Well. The only thing that brings the kids in, if you will, is telling them the truth. you got to speak the truth. you got to tell them like it is according to God's word. Right now, the churches are hemorrhaging people because they don't have anything to feed them with. They're all trying to be relevant. Their aircraft carrier is parked at the dock. And people come up and just say, well... Got a nice flight deck, five hospital, cool. But what's your purpose? I do So, as you go out, first thing to do is continue to speak the truth. And by the way, when you get one of these people who won't tell the truth, like our current Supreme Court justice, what you have to do is laugh at them and mock them. They deserve no respect. Being nice doesn't work. Because being nice gets you run over. Colorado right now is the death capital of the country. Remember I said last week, Colorado was the first state in the nation to legalize abortion. Now we have passed laws making sure that we still get to kill ourselves. And the church... Isn't doing anything. Being nice, being polite, isn't winning. Now, don't get me wrong. You don't have to be gratuitously nasty. But there are times when nasty is the appropriate response. you got to learn those. And when nasty is not the appropriate response, by all means, don't be nasty. I'm not telling you to go out and be gratuitously nasty. But what the world will do is come up and say, well... You know, these people, they don't really know what gender they are and so forth. So what we're going to do is we're going to help them figure it out. No, what you're going to do is you're going to maim them for life and get them stuck in a really bad decision when they are still young and don't know any better. That's satanic. But you will find people in the churches who will say, oh, well, this poor child is confused and so forth, and what we're going to do is help them figure out who they really are. No. What you do is disciple them in the gospel, disciple them in Christ, and when they grow up, they may be able to figure out who they are, but the idea that they were, what's the word now, assigned the wrong gender at birth, I mean, it's absurd. And the problem is, our churches are not fighting this stuff tooth and nail. The world used to fear the church. It does not anymore. And that's because our aircraft carrier is parked in the dock, and we have these big therapy sessions going on inside, instead of, now that you're healed, get back out there and fight.